Welcome to the Business of Psychology podcast, the show that helps you to reach more people, help more people, and build the life you want to live by doing more than therapy. Hello and welcome to the Business of Psychology. Today I'm here with Dr. Debbie Sutherland. Debbie's an executive coach and an academic who's helped executives, leaders and business owners to thrive all over the world. Debbie, your career is fascinating and I know that you're a real expert in behavioural science in the corporate world and lots of other things as well. So I can't wait to hear more about you. So could we just get started um, with a bit of an introduction really? So who are you and how do you help people? Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on your show. This is really exciting for me. Um, so essentially, I'm a Canadian and um, what I've done is spent most of my uh, young adult and uh, adult life um, overseas and I've, I've worked in different countries. So I have always wondered, I guess, how we kind of go back and reflect back and find out what inspired us, what my passion is, um, is I was always curious how people think. So if you can think back to all your childhood dramas that you went through, I was, it seems like I was never in the middle of them. I was always on the periphery, just watching, trying to understand how people think, what got us into this mess. So I think that that type of thinking mental model that I had progressed me into um, centralized positions as a young adult. And so um, I think that took me into the leadership sphere where I was always wondering about the leaders. How did they get there? How are they becoming a leader? Um, and so I was always watching them. And back in that time frame, I, I thought those really good leaders are the ones who have very strong opinions. And they were very strong in how they forced those opinions. Maybe they were the loudest ones in the room. And I thought, oh my gosh, they're so convincing. They're so influential in how they give their message across. And I thought, humbly speaking, back then, that I would never become a leader because I never had that strong of an opinion. I always was swayed by new information that came in going, oh, my gosh, well, that sounds like an interesting idea. So um, that's what I thought leadership was at that point. And so as I uh, progressed in my career, um, I was looking at the theories. I was a, you know, a corporate person but I really wanted to know the theories behind all the behaviors that we saw in, in, the, in the business. So I did go to Columbia University and there's a, a wonderful program there called the XMA, Executive Masters in Organizational Develop, Design and Behaviors. And what I learned there, the one theory, you know when there's a one theory that you learn and it just flips the light on and you're like, oh my gosh, that's it. That's what I, I, I understand. It was systems thinking. And so I'm not sure if you've heard of system thinking. It's a, it's a very old term that comes from the design sciences and the chaos uh, theories. But really what it is, it's the art and science of making inferences about people, uh, behaviors, and systems. And so, so that you can understand the underlying structures um, that propel people. And do they do what they do in a corporate? So when I got that, I'm like, aha. Uh -huh. I now see that there's a lot of good leaders who understand people and their behaviors, and I found them to be more successful. So I think that became my, my guiding light to understand systems thinking in the business. And so that helped me with all of the practicalities of business 
performance management, rewards, retention, people. It's not just one thing that people understand in the business. It, it comes down to so many other nuances that make um, employees successful in their journey. So at that time in your life, when you just um, discovered this course and discovered systems thinking and were finding that really helpful, what was your role in the corporate environment in that time? So a lot of us um, don't have very much experience at all of what the corporate ladder looks like. Ah, okay. Well, it was interesting because I gravitated towards centralized positions. So it wasn't necessarily hierarchy that I was concerned about in my career. It, I was in um, HR teams, which is centralized. And ah. then I was centralized in uh, strategy teams as well. So it wasn't really title orientated. It was, I considered myself almost the glue because I seemed to understand people and I pulled them together. So I, I seem to have been valuable in that space. Um, so working alongside these McKinsey, um, BCG consultants, they actually had, you know, inches thick of strategy, but they didn't know necessarily how the people would implement it. How do they carry it forward? So it became a wonderful partnership. Aha, um, so you were already working in roles where you were facing these problems all the time, where things like retention, for example, were sort of your problem. Um, but you hadn't found the, the way of fixing that that would stick. Right. And so I think through practice, through experiences, you learn. Um, right. And then, of course, the academic, stepping my toe into the academic world was wonderful. I loved all these new theories, adult learning theories, motivation theory, and, you know, the basic, the good basic stuff that help you in, in your role. Um, and then what I can tell you a little bit the types of companies I worked for because I've worked mainly with startup large scale startup companies and so they're very messy. I have to say the first 18 months to two years it's very messy you're wearing a lot of hats there's a lot of pressures um, there's not a process in place so people who we maybe hired and maybe like that structure maybe we didn't filter them uh, or talk to them about it as much as we should have when they were hired, but maybe they don't do very well in that space. And either they leave on their own, or maybe we ask them to leave because they just can't seem to handle all of these, again, systems thinking. Something that happens on this side of the business is resonating throughout. It's like a little trampoline, right? There's little vibrations that happen and you have to be aware of what's happening in the marketing department of why that product is not selling, it just really doesn't have anything only to do with marketing. There's other things. Were they trained well enough? Does their line manager even talk to them? Um, was there any performance reviews? Have they ever gotten feedback? Did they ever have milestones? There's all of these systems things that is probably the reason why this product is not selling. Wow, so you found a theory that kind of made sense of the problems that all of these businesses were facing and allowed you to, I guess, communicate that to them. Because I get the sense that from your experience, you were kind of already aware that there might be these issues, but it's very difficult to communicate that to an exactly. organization in a way that makes sense to them. Whereas yes. when you've got a unifying theory behind it, that sounds incredibly useful. One of the next things I think I learned that propelled me now to, you know, the next big phase is um, knowledge sharing. To me, it was like 
Um, people could sit 50 feet away from each other in a business and never know each other's names. And it's so prevalent, I didn't realize that knowledge sharing was so valuable. It's intangible. I can't make you share information in a business. Um, so what is that motivation behind all of that? Because the business, if you want to be flexible, if you want to be agile, you got to make quick decisions. You have to know where to find all of this information. So I did my master's thesis on on knowledge sharing in the business and created a wonderful template that I think a blueprint other organizational psychologists can use. Um, but what I really honed in on is that through all of these startups, I worked with some wonderful people, uh, dignitaries, CEOs, foreign diplomats, uh, scientists, and they all came from diverse backgrounds and education backgrounds. And But some of them were better and more equipped thinking skills in ambiguity than others. And I didn't know what the pattern was. And that became the impetus for my doctoral research is I would love to know how these people, how they pick up these nuances. Where did they learn it from? Did they all go to the same university and have this? Are they all engineers? Cause they're, they think like engineers. I didn't know. And that's, that became my research. Wow, fascinating. So, Tell me a little bit more about that research project then. What what kind of came out of that for you? Oh my gosh, so much. It was so it was so it was a wonderful experience. But there were three big research questions that I had, as as as, as your listeners will probably know in terms of research, getting it all structured um, in place so that you can go forth and collect data. Um, it was a, an exploratory uh, semi-structured interview. Uh, process from Columbia University. But the first question is, what are the beliefs? What are the principles? And what are the behaviors of executives who work in conditions of ambiguity? What do they think? And then the next layer was, what experiences and events um, provide the scaffolding in the development of that thinking capacity? And then the third question is, what relationship systems and elements in the environment uh, help to develop this? Um, so, and where that came from, you can see my hands moving in spheres. Um, there's this great researcher, um, um, Dr. Brenfenbronner, and he did adult learning uh, in the 1960s, and he had spheres. He says a childhood development is their little nucleus at home, but their behaviors and their learning experiences change as they expand from the home, what happens in the streets with their playground friends, what happens in the school, what happens with your churches and their communities and their clubs, so that you could have two children in the same household, but one has got different groups of friends, the other one plays sports, was bullied or something. They will have different experiences um, and recollections of and how they grow up in terms of their values. So. I call them spheres of insights. You have your individual sphere, what you're thinking, what's happening to you in the organization that impacts you and how you think. And then what happens when you expand even further to the environment, what's going on outside of your business that influences you and how you show up to work each day. All of those things is your whole person self. Wow. That sounds like an incredibly useful um study to have completed so when you got I imagine that was a long period of work <laughs> um, I know from doing a doctoral thesis they are normally long <laughs> yes exactly um, so when you came out of the other end of that 
and you know I can hear it in your voice that you just had this sort of passion to use it (laughs) so how how did you go about um bringing that to the world and making use of of that knowledge so you're absolutely right I'm um I'm a I'm in corporate and I love the academic space so I'm an academic practitioner so I definitely wanted my doctoral research to be something that would be like a blueprint you can just bring into any business so my research was really aimed towards executives that's my primary um, um, audience because um, executives don't get into leadership programs they're just too darn busy Um, But the world is moving way too fast for them to um, even absorb what's happening in their own space. So um, how do they learn? How do they grasp all these um, dynamic and fluid environment that they're in? So I really wanted to research the ones who were successful, and then maybe it would help other executives. And then a second audience, of course, is talent professionals because it is like a blueprint. You can take this in, into your own organization and help spread these thinking um, insights and behavior insights into your own organization. So everybody is kind of thinking and speaking in the same language. Okay, so um, just to double check, did you say a talent professional? Yes, like um, your learning and development team within the business. Ah, uh, okay. So for your listeners, I think it would be Uh, people who are therapists and um, clinical psychologists is I think some of the key insights that I pulled out of the coding and the research might be of interest um, because you're essentially entrepreneurs, right? You're in this amazing space and you've taken this um, leap into um, outside of maybe a corporate what you were doing before or the the academic setting that you were in. And it's, it's kind of scary out there. You're on your own. Where do you get your information from? How do you think the next step when you have so many variables? Um, how do you get out of your own head and your thinking to see if you're on the right path? Absolutely. I think um, I, I very much encourage people to own that identity as entrepreneurs. I think a lot of uh, mental health professionals who go into private practice struggle with it, but actually we need to learn how to manage this stuff and we need to recognize that we are leaders within our businesses and actually look into what do, you know, as you're saying, what do effective leaders need to know um, to get through difficult times, to deal with, say, conflicts, difficult decisions, um, putting out products and services when you don't know that they'll be successful. We've been talking a lot on here about um, launching online courses. And there is no blueprint on how to create the perfect online course that will perfectly serve your niche client group. There really isn't. You have to cope with the uncertainty and put stuff out there and see and test and be a scientist about it. (laughs) Um, But in order to have that objective and scientific analytical um, point of view, you have to deal with all of this anxious horrible uncertainty inside yourself while you're creating it um, so right. I think it's really and really I think I think also in another one of your shows you were talking about um zoom calls with your clients now that that was never the norm now it is <laughs> now it's the expectation is when we were going through that change and thinking about it um were we listening to other people did we think it would never work um yeah, there's, it's, it's changed. And what was your thinking when you got through that is very helpful. Um, I can tell you one of the 
the first things that I found from my research is that I call something called an ambiguity mindset. So I go through, I found five key things that all of these successful leaders have done to manage ambiguity or not manage, thrive within ambiguity. Um, they have a deeply reflective mindset. So if there's new elements and situation and influencers, they reflect on it. Um, they take that deliberate pause and they say, what's happening here? Um, because if you just keep moving forward without that critical reflection um, piece, um, you're just, you could bulldoze over, you, yeah, you'll definitely move forward, but is it the right forward? Um, so what happened with these executives is they actively take a deliberate pause and to be a critical, um, a critical thinker, um, reflection thinker, of course, you have to have a new behavior to move forward. It's not just looking backward. Um, it's like journaling. Um, I, I think that all of your, your clients at some point you're, you're advocating for journaling, which is amazing. People in the corporate world don't journal. Mm. Doctors journal, therapists journal, um, clients journal. Um, but in the corporate world, that's really not a thing. And that, so that's because um, you can, when you're, when you do it, you can see your patterns of behavior insights. Oh, what was my trigger? Why do I always keep getting upset with that employee? Mm. Um, why am I anxious about this meeting when that person is very difficult to work with? Why am I always not speaking my mind in those meetings? So being able to journal and go back to those patterns of behavior, I think, give you another insight up to how you can move forward and tackle that work situation again. So that was one of the key things which you pulled out as being helpful for people who were um, quite good at getting through these kind of ambiguous situations I, I think that self-reflection piece is really crucial and actually although all of us might advocate for our clients to do it we all know the value of it it's really common for people to never do that when it comes to their business life or even their personal life actually um, but particularly in business often I'll say to somebody, you know, why do you think that you keep going in circles with that course um, or, you know, you don't, you don't ever publish that blog post? And they'll come up with something really superficial, like, oh, you know, it's been really busy. I've just been really busy. I think, mm, really? Or is there some avoidance going on? Or is there some reason that you really dread doing that and you, you haven't kind of worked through that? Um, so, you know, we're not that great at self-reflection <laughs> quite often, I know. From personal yeah. experience I've often not been that great at it so right. that that seems like a really important takeaway for for people um what is interesting there was um actions behind it and another thing that businesses are not necessarily good at because it's painful um is um the lessons learned exercise um and then of course anyone in uh, in therapy as well after a session if it didn't go well obviously you're, you're probably tracking why, or, or you, you could be thinking, oh, did I come across too strong? Was the setting not right? Was the technology not working? What was, uh, what, what was that? So being able to do those lessons learned is also patterning. And then you'll be able to get, gain insights into why that happened and how you can make corrective action in the future. Brilliant, it kind of gives you an action plan to move forward. Exactly. 
So one of the other things that came out in the research was, um, and I kind of laughing when I say this, is that the only way that they learned how to deal with ambiguity was being in ambiguity. They got some definitely good lessons learned when they were immersed in that mess. And I don't want to talk about the pandemic because that's just so much on your nose, right? We all learned a lot um, in different ways. But when you're in, when you're um, working on a project and there's so many variables, like we were talking about at the beginning of, of launching your business into a different sphere and doing a blog, and you don't, there's so many amazing bloggers out there, but how do you replicate that? Um, is if you, it turned out that if you don't put yourself in those positions, it's hard to do that more in the future. Mm -hmm. So it just becomes easier to get into those gray spaces when you're like, oh yeah, I've already had three of those last week. I've managed them. We survived them. This is what I've learned. So again, it's putting yourself in those situations, being a reflective learner so that you can take away those experiences and getting a better um, action in the future. Mm, so there's always something about being willing to be in those situations. You have to be curious. I know that seems to be the biggest um, catchphrase that's going on, but if you're not curious, you're judging. Um, and that's how I say it in the business, because if somebody is late for work, you or late for work twice or the third time, you kind of lay on a little bit of judgment of why are they always so late? right? Don't they, can't they be here on time? So that's a judgment. But if you're curious and you come from that kind of um, ethos, then you can ask a question. Oh, I've noticed. Can, is everything okay? Um, right? And then you get more information. Again, it's about knowledge sharing. So you have to be, you have to take the time to query. Mm. That's, yeah, that's such a good example. I remember somewhere that my husband worked, everyone was always late for work. And it was because the public transport um, had changed routes. So the train that used to go to a particular station had been rerouted to a different station. Um, and they actually handled it really intelligently. So they started out punishing everybody. <laughs> when that wasn't making any difference, they started to ask what's going on, um, found out and just set all meetings back by an hour. And people stayed in the office an hour later, but they didn't have that pressure in the morning. Uh, made a really big difference and boosted morale loads. Amazing, right? So, I mean, that comes down to something in the externals, the outer sphere that was impacting the behavior in the business. Mm. Hmm. That's really interesting. So what were the other main themes that emerged in your research? So um, I guess it's moving into the outer sphere. I was so thrilled that the actual research actually came out in those kind of spheres. It's your mental models and adaptable mental models. Um, if you have new information, you can change your mind. It's okay. And that was a big thing for me as a, as a leader. I'm like, oh, I can be a leader because I now have new information. That's okay. Um, but the other ones moved into the outer spheres. And so the social, the cultural, and the operational system is an underutilized strategic intent. Meaning if you're not paying attention to your environment of what's happening, you're probably not gleaning all the tools that you can be doing to be understanding the ambiguous situation that you're in, but again, or taking the next step to what is the next decision point that I need to get to. So 
that is your community of practice, that is your, your platform that you're using right now to help everyone come to a centralized area where you give them um, great information from different experts. Um, and so that's part of, it's um, part of the social intelligence theory is that you can only be so smart, but you need the other people's intelligence um, to make a broader base of the decision that you're going to make next, if that makes sense. Yeah, so if I'm understanding it right, is it sort of similar to what we would think about as the locus of control, like recognizing what beyond you is important? in this situation and will be influencing um, you know the people or the project that you're working on or with <laughs> yes and, and and i think in the corporate world we call that stakeholder relationship yeah right? who's I've got the power that, yeah. who's got the interests and how does that affect you yeah yeah because i think often when you do see people struggling in business they are overly focused on their role and not thinking enough about those kind of environmental factors, which might be impinging on, you know, their sales or, you know, they'll jump straight to I'm rubbish. That's why I'm not selling anything. And you're like, well, actually, let's have a think about what's going on in the wider world. And then maybe you need to take action to reflect what's going on in the wider world or make sure right. that you're aligned with what's going on. Um, yeah. Yes, I am. Um... I, this comes up a lot is, um, I'm not a, a clinical therapist, but people come into my office and they're like, oh my God, what just happened that meeting? It went horrible. I, I got outed and it was uncomfortable and the line manager yelled, da, da, da. and then of, of course you can't think because it's all about you and you're totally, totally embarrassed. Um, so as we go through this little coaching um, on where we ask questions similar to what you got, you were just doing is what else was happening? So I get people to pay attention to what the pressures the CEO was under. Why do you think the CEO was irritated in that meeting? Just go there. Like why? Um, did he have a board meeting? Did the numbers not match? Did he feel that that's a part of his ego? This is his pet, pet his or her pet project. Um, what kind of pressures do you think was happening over there? And then that was the release and it was aimed at you, of course, um, unfortunately. Um, but being better prepared for the next meeting is taking that scan of what's going on with other people. And again, I go to the outer sphere is, is there anyone that supports your view? Where's your coalition? Are you influencing people before the meeting happens um, so that they understand what you'd like to promote? I think with your example, maybe somebody wasn't speaking up in a meeting is, 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 is why is that? Is there one little small step that you think will get, be well received by a person? And that's just the first step. And then you get success and you learn from that experience that finding your like-minded people is beneficial. Mm. Yeah, I can definitely see how people who are able to do that and rather than I think it's a natural tendency to make everything all about us and to heap all the blame on ourselves. I think it's a natural self-protective strategy that our minds have evolved. Um, but I think people who are able to be mindful enough to separate from that 
and think, okay, that's what my mind wants to do. My mind wants to blame me for this and make it all about my competence. But actually, what else um, was going on in the environment? What's the political environment in this room? Who's got allegiances where? And how can I use that um, to, to do better next time or to get more of what I want next time? I can totally see how those people end up being those leaders or business owners who succeed in the end I think I've seen that story many times yeah and you know I think some people um if they network they're not they're maybe more introverts and they and it's they find it hard to build those um alliances um per se in a more overt fashion um but maybe they can do it they can foster those crucial connections over coffee with one person it really doesn't have to be on a macro level, um, but being able to understand your neighbors, your coworkers, um, the person, the context and the environment that they're in is, is, is very important. Um, I love your story about the, the late train um, because it's just, it's, it just goes to show that there are so many things happening in the environment that affect the business or even every employee in a different way that they, don't even know sometimes yeah and there could have easily been a, a line manager there saying oh it's because I've got no authority nobody respects me that's why all of my team are always really late um, and that would cause a certain set of knock-on behaviors I should imagine <laughs> um, yeah. a bit of ego protection yeah because perhaps. I'm going to be late now too because if that whole group gets to be late why not why can't I so yeah, exactly yeah. but by recognizing that that might not be accurate, stepping back and doing a bit of research about what else might be going on for people, they found a productive solution. Um, yeah, not straight away, but they did do it. <laughs> and I've always thought of that as quite a good example um, in my business. So, yes, and we, go ahead, please. Oh, no, I was just wondering kind of, you know, how you've applied this, because you, you've gathered all of this amazing knowledge and, um, almost guidelines really for, for people either in executive positions or running their own businesses. I'm just wondering how you take that out to people now in your work. So I wrote a book um, in the sense because um, you've done your dissertation. Um, I don't know how many pe people read yours, but like three people, four people, <laughs> I know are guaranteed that wrote, read mine. My husband loves me. He's never read it. Um, I just knew it was good information for other people. So that's why you have to bring it. I wanted to bring it to um, a, a larger audience in a, in a simpler way of digesting all of that theory. Um, so it, it became a book. Um, but to answer your question is, I think it becomes how you structure everything in the business. So for example, if you take the knowledge sharing piece, um, we found out, and, and the companies are set up in silos. Each department is a silo, per se, right? We have a hierarchy going upward. And then, of course, you have some people or your friends that you communicate with from other departments, and you're like, oh, my God, I didn't know that was happening, that you were working on that. As a business, you can set up your business so that collaborative spacing, um, the software that you use, the data storage places that you use, how you exchange information, the soft spaces, the water coolers, um, that you talk to and get soft information that is also very important, the face-to-face. -face. So those are the things that we're missing now when everyone's remote working. So that's why you find all these um, 
organizational psychologists, HR people, trying to understand how do you build engagement with people that they don't see each other face to face, because that piece is very important for um, the, the knowledge sharing, the tactic knowledge sharing that you need to do. So building um, um, little frameworks, it doesn't have to be strong policies and procedures, is just um, kind of influencing people that they need to share information here, do some lessons learned here, doing a town hall, um, underrated um, performance management, people do it to tick the box. That's one of the biggest systems thinking failures is people just think it's about their performance and their rating and how they did. And But if you do it well, you can help that person understand that they're sharing objectives with somebody in another, another department. And if they actually collaborate, that actually builds the business faster, more efficiently, or whatever the milestones are, and getting these people to get outside their own heads of, of what a performance management system does. So it sounds like there are things you can do to help yourself um, to have a, a better relationship with ambiguity, but that also it, it's a lot about the way that the business is built and really changing some quite fundamental aspects to the business. Right. You're just so busy that sometimes you just don't pay attention to where there's missed opportunities. Mm -hmm. I had an, an executive team that they all talked to each other multiple times a day, but they never met with the three other executives on a formal level and they seemed to get got left out. And so it was just conversations. It never was strategic discussions mm -hmm. until you kind of point it out and go, oh, wow, we've never had a formalized meeting in six months. No wonder we feel scattered. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, you know, sometimes it might go the other way as well, where there's lots of meetings, but there's never any actions from the meetings. Um, and I can see how your framework would help people to see <laughs> where the holes are in what their mm -hmm. existing practice is. So are you kind of freelance now going into different businesses doing consultancy or are you still working within an organization? So it was um, just recently I was working as a consultant and that was, yes, the performance and people arm. Um, but my first client was a large scale insure tech company um, with uh, this amazing executive team. And so I was kind of, the, I was the first person that they had hired um, as the consultant is because they were tech people, but they didn't, in the previous company, they didn't really pay attention to HR um, because that the tech was selling the business or the, the business. Um, but slowly they realized that it's just so many arguments were happening and conflict um, and they can't, you can't put your finger on it. It's, it's incremental messiness. So they said, I think it's this. So please come in here and help us set up the structures. And, and they asked me to join them. And after the third time of being asked, I said, absolutely. Cause it's an amazing team. Um, but again, I'm in another startup. It's um, growing very fast. It's a little bit messy. Hiring the people that can, you know, really think through that and are comfortable in that space. So again, it's important that I'm um, interviewing people who, who have, I'm talking about their experiences. When was the last time you dealt with um, ambiguity? What, what was your thinking process going through it? 
and just seeing if people are reflective learners because I think they um, you need to learn those. Of course, other people happy to have them on board who wants to learn and grow in a startup organization is, is amazing as well. That sounds like such a great fit for your expertise because a startup, it does still have that flexibility to build the organization around these principles that you know are really important. Whereas I can imagine that in some of the kind of big established corporates, it would be difficult to get the buy-in that you need um, to make some of the changes that you know are going to be really impactful. Um, is really? that your experience? Have you done any consultancy with kind of more static organizations? Um, you know, it, you're, you're right, absolutely. But um, I, one of the examples is you'll always run into stubborn people. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good point, good point. So if any, I, you know, if anyone, when I'm doing coaching sessions and I'm giving somebody, I mean, well, this is your your psychometrics. This is your evaluation. What do you think? It says here that you have strong opinions that bear that that rarely sway, and they'll laugh and they'll say, "Oh yeah, of course, everybody calls me stubborn." So it, it's your self moniker, right? Of, of you own that. Um, but again, being stubborn is okay and having your own point of view, but I always tell them if there's overwhelming evidence to su suggest that there's probably another point of view, then maybe you've gotten yourself into a deep thinking rut um, and you've held fast to something that's no longer relevant. Um, so you run into that no matter what organization you're in. Yeah, of course. Humans are humans after all. Yes, yes. <laughs> Um, so I think that there are going to be lots of people who are interested in reading your book. So it's called The Business of Ambiguity. Is that right? Yes, it is. Almost like the business of psychology. <laughs> yeah, it's like, this is a great <laughs> synergy. <laughs> um, so, well, firstly, tell us where people can go to find the book and to connect with you, because I think people are going to want to follow what you're doing. Oh, excellent. Um, so the book was um, almost... It was, it was completed during the pandemic. Um, and so I knew that not many people would be going to bookstores. So it is now launched in any digital um, bookstore platform, your favorite one in terms of Amazon or Goodreads, um, Target, Walmart, all of that, all those places that have a digital bookstore, that's where you can find it. Oh, fantastic. And I, I will say I put it into Google and I found it everywhere. Um, and it's got a really cool website as well. <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you. So I'll put all those links in the show notes so that people can find the book really easily. Um, and you've shared so much valuable stuff with us and it's really set my brain on fire um, thinking about all of these things. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask before we finish is you know, what advice would you give for psychologists and therapists who are maybe starting out on their entrepreneurial journeys um, and are feeling very uncertain at the moment. Yes. So, um, well, I commend them for obviously taking that step because being an entrepreneur and having your own business is, is amazing. Um, I think it would be one, you, it, let me do this in the spheres again, because um, that's just how I think, is be curious, okay, and open for new information. So always um, be asking and in the environment, uh, put yourself out there. It's okay. Um, failing at a few things is okay. You learn from your experiences and then build your community. 
um, build your tribe and seek out. Um, the, the final um, strategy is, is harness the power of strategic networks or diverse networks. Um, seek out people who don't think like you. Brilliant. You don't, have, you don't have to pull in exactly, you don't have to implement what they say, but you'll gain some insights from that. I think that's a really great piece of advice. I think it's all brilliant advice, but particularly that last point. Um, it's very easy to only really talk to your echo chamber, isn't mm. it? Um, but one of the most valuable things that I learned when I started thinking about myself as a social entrepreneur and joining some programs for social entrepreneurs was that actually my accountant friend sees this whole issue completely differently from me. And it kind of woke me up to lots of assumptions that I was making um, that weren't necessarily truths. So yeah, very, very powerful tool to do that. Excellent. Um, I mean, thank you so much, Debbie. It's been really, really interesting, quite different for us actually to, to really dive into the academics um, behind something. So I hope, I think people will have found that fascinating and I know that I have. Thank Is there any so way much. that we can follow you on social media or? Is your website the best place? Um, so my my uh, website is Behaviors in Business. Um, and then I think my Instagram handle is the same, Behaviors in Business and Twitter. Brilliant. I'll put all of those links in the show notes as well so that we can all start following each other. So, yes, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Do you sometimes wake up at two o'clock in the morning worried that you've made a terrible error that will bring professional ruin upon you and disgrace your family? <laughs> I'm laughing now, but when I first set up in private practice, I was completely terrified that I'd miss something big when setting up my insurance or data protection. Even now, three years in, I sometimes catch myself wondering if I've really covered all the bases. It's hard, no, probably impossible, to think creatively and have the impact you should be having in your practice if you aren't confident that you've got a secure business underneath you. But it can be overwhelming to figure out exactly what you need to prioritise before those clients start coming in. I've created a free checklist plus resources list to take the thinking out of it. Tick off every box and you can see your clients confident in the knowledge that you've got everything in place for your security and theirs. Download it now from psychologybusinessschool.com forward slash client hyphen checklist. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Business of Psychology podcast. If you share my passion for doing more than therapy, then make sure you come over and join my free Do More Than Therapy Facebook community where you can work on getting your big ideas off the ground with like-minded psychologists and therapists. I'd also love it if you could leave this show a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It will help more of the people who need it to find it. See you next week for more tips and inspirational stories to help you do more than therapy. Therapy.